This is the On the Touchline podcast. We're your hosts, Jason Broadwater and Aaron Rogers. Welcome to the show. What's up, guys? Uh, welcome to 2020 in the On the Touchline podcast. I hope everyone had a great holiday season, and I hope your new year is off to a great start. And you've had a chance to watch a lot of football or soccer uh, since the last time that we spoke. Our first guest in 2020 is John Krasinski. And John covers soccer locally for Pittsburgh Soccer Now. And Pittsburgh Soccer Now is a website dedicated to covering the game in all aspects locally here in the Pittsburgh area, where I call home. So John does a fantastic job covering everything from the high school level game here locally, all the way up to the professional game in the Pittsburgh Riverhounds, and also does an excellent job with their college coverage of some of the local colleges and universities here in the Pittsburgh area. I was first turned on to John's work probably about a year ago, and as I entered into the high school game here locally, I was looking for a source or a place where I could find uh, match write-ups or the coverage that I was kind of craving, uh, not only as a coach, but as a fan of local high school sports, especially soccer. And John's team does a fantastic job, better than most, um, if not all the media outlets locally, of actually paying attention to the game and giving some really in-depth coverage um, that is lacking and needed, I think, locally here to grow the game. So it was instantly drawn to Pittsburgh Soccer Now and what they do. So I've included a link uh, in the show notes that if you want to go check out their work, uh, you can definitely do that. Also uh, included John's Twitter bio, that be sure to give him a follow um, as well. This conversation takes a, a lot of turns and twists. Uh, we talk about the Pittsburgh Riverhounds and how they've sort of uh, managed to survive uh, over the last 20 years and some of the challenges they've had, but seem to be on a little bit more firm ground or firmer ground here um, going into the new year. I also found it really fascinating of John's coaching career. John worked at his alma mater, then Point Park College, now Point Park University, as their first coach. And he shares what it was like training players and working with players um, in that role in the college game. And some, some really great insight, um, some pretty fantastic stories, some funny stories uh, that he shares as part of this episode. And last but not least, I had mentioned John's coverage of the high school game locally. If you pay attention to high school soccer throughout the country, I think you'll want to listen to that part of this episode with great uh, detail. And I say that because Pennsylvania has some really weird rules when it comes to officiating high school matches. And we get into a pretty lively discussion of why a lot of these things are, quite frankly, just archaic and have expired <laughs> in terms of their usefulness. Yet there isn't a, a willingness from the governing bodies to really change as much as they probably should or could to make the game a little bit better not only for coaches, but for the players and for the referees, quite frankly, uh, themselves. So before we get into this episode with John, you can find this podcast on all major podcasting platforms. So whatever pod 
So whatever podcasting platform you prefer, please be sure to subscribe to the show. That way you will never miss a new episode. And it is a new year, and we hope to have a little bit more sustainability in terms of getting episodes out um, throughout most of 2020. So we'll be putting new episodes out every Wednesday starting next week. So the first full week of the new year. And you subscribe to the show, you'll never miss a new episode. Also too, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, it really means a lot to Aaron and I that if you have a chance to leave us a five-star rating and a brief review about the show, it just takes all of 30 seconds to write a few sentences about different aspects of the show that you might enjoy and helps grow the show when people search soccer or football podcast that the On the Touchline podcast comes up uh, quickly for them. And last but not least, if you want to connect with Aaron and I on social media, we would love that as well. You can find him at Ohio Soccer Coach on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find me at Soccer Coach JB on the same platforms as well. Enjoy the first episode of the new year. Episode 11 of Season 3, and our guest, John Krasinski. Very much appreciate, um, you know, what the work you and, um, you know, the, the supporting staff you have um, at Pittsburgh Soccer now, just because, you know, um, Pittsburgh still, or uh, soccer in this area is a bit of a, it's gotten better, you know, and Aaron and I were talking a little bit about this earlier today that, you know, it's crazy to think that the Riverhounds have been around 20 years, but people I think are finally more in than they were. Um, you know, I don't know if I'd say that they're all in, but, you know, you saw it at the, the playoff game um, or games um, this past season. You saw the, the atmosphere around Highmark. You know, it, it start, I think things are starting to change a little bit. And I think that's great, you know, for, for my kids as they get a little bit older to have an authentic soccer and, you know, you know, football, I sort of use those terms interchangeably, um, culture. And uh, yeah, uh, I I can't get enough of it. (laughs) So. Yeah, I mean, mean, I I, I could say the same same thing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it started as a small venture for me, just covering Riverhounds games once Highmark Stadium opened. Mm-hmm. Next thing I knew, I, within a couple of years, had started my own site and wanted to do more, wanted to provide something where the soccer fans in our area had had a little bit more in-depth coverage, you know, had something where, you know, looking all around, you could see, you know, I followed a lot of the good soccer writers in and around the, the country and thought, I could do, you know, I could, I could, I'd like to provide something like that for the Pittsburgh area. And with my background in journalism communications and having a soccer background, I thought it would be a great way to kind of put all of that together. And so first started Pittsburgh Soccer Report in 19, in 2020, uh, sorry, 2015. And then if that we merged with the Pittsburgh um, Sports Now kind of group uh, to create Pittsburgh Soccer Now in 2018. Um, it's since 
starting Soccer Report and Soccer Now in the past, you know, year and a half, almost two years now, it's, uh, you know, our, it, it's like everything else in the Pittsburgh lock soccer landscape. But you talked about the, the Riverhounds being, getting to that point where they're, you know, they're getting a little bit more recognition. The area, you know, the sport in the area is starting to grow. I, I think it's been incremental, uh, particularly there was a little bit of a boost when Highmark Stadium was, uh, you know, 2013 when Highmark Stadium was 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 uh, finally opened and there was a bit of a buzz that first year, but then it really plateaued for Riverhounds in terms of attendance. But everything else just sort of incrementally. I mean, in terms of the rest of the soccer, um, yeah, I don't know how to say it. like the just everybody else. I think interest started to grow in all the other areas, and I think one of the nice things about Highmark Stadium is it's sort of served as this this mecca, this central, uh, this kind of place where everybody has had some sort of games played there. It's it's very unique in that it's one it's been the central uh, focal point for Pittsburgh soccer growth in the past um, really six or seven years and um, you could see it too I mean there's been uh, obviously the, the WPIL uh, finals are played there every year the NCAA division two championships are were played as well so I think there's a significance to Highmark Stadium but it hasn't been the sole uh, thing that's kind of where we've seen that growth, but we've seen Pitt improve its facilities and, and create Ambrose Urbanic Field as part of the Peterson Sports Complex. And that is a, just a beautiful uh, facility and a gem and a recruiting tool for both Pitt coaches uh, to get some of the best players in the country to come and play at Pitt now, which five or six years ago is unheard of. So, so the, all of these things are happening and it's just this, incremental growth and there's a lot of resources now there's a lot of great coaches these things i don't think i mean there were good coaches and there was there's there was a, a lot of history you know that's the one thing that people don't realize maybe about pittsburgh is that pittsburgh has i mean if you go way back in the annals of you know american soccer history pittsburgh has you know especially at the turn of the uh, 20th century with all the immigrants, uh, the, you know, there was a lot of really good soccer teams and amateur level teams that were at the top um, competing for open cups and things like that. But obviously so many changes in the, the city's history and the region's history of, uh, and football and some of the other sports becoming what they became soccer then kind of took a back seat, but, it's just a it's just a fascinating history and and like you said it's hard to believe the Riverhounds have been around for 20 years but it's I feel like the Riverhounds have been um, there's been three stages of their history that one of the key points for them was when the developmental academy started in 2007 and that you know the influence that that had uh, over the you know again talking about incremental growth they started they they started pretty slowly doing a lot more instructional and educational type stuff um, for technical training. Uh, and I, I kind of point to Aaron and just kind of say, like, you know, you could, you could probably see the, um, you know, the level of players, the number of players that were coming out of Western Pennsylvania 
after that, and and, and there's other really terrific clubs, uh, you know, Meadlink, Century, and some others, mm-hmm. but the growth of more clubs have really risen in the last decade, but I think the, the, the Riverhounds Academy, I think, you know, stepped up, they stepped, you know, made everybody else kind of step up their game, and it got a little bit more competitive in this area, and I think that's actually yeah, I mean, Beedling, I mean, you go Beedling, go, I mean, I'm from Texas, and I mean, you knew Beedling when I was growing up and playing in the late 80s and early 90s in youth soccer, you know, you knew Beedling, and, and Beedling's obviously still around and, and a very successful and, and, and good good club, a lot of history, um, but as you said, it, it probably upped the ante for everybody else to to get their game going on because they got a new a new person in town or a new, new group in town that's that's pushing that, that level higher and higher, and you know that that rising tide raises all the ships, and it's uh, it's really great for for Pittsburgh for sure. So, John, you're um, I, I think I read that you grew up in Long Island, New York, and that um, you have a, a bit of a coaching background. And this oh, being uh, yeah. a, a soccer coaching podcast, that uh, I think probably important to hit that. So, uh, tell folks a little bit about your coaching background. Sure, uh, nothing too much to brag about, but uh, I, I got into the game. And very unique way. I, I was the traditional three sport athlete uh, growing up on Long Island. I was a baseball, basketball, football player. I had soccer was always there. You know, a lot of it was one of those areas where we could grow up and go outside and find a game. And even in the 1970s, and I think actually growing up in New York, Long Island in the 1970s, we had that influence. We had Peter Cosmer, Pat Taylor. So there was, you know, there was, there was, you know, there was enough there. It was a kind of an exciting time, uh, you know, there. And of course, we had these New York Arrows and four straight uh, MISL titles. So well, as the New York Islanders were winning their titles, you know, we had the Arrows. So, so there was definitely a soccer influence there. I loved the game. I liked playing the game. My high school didn't have a soccer team, uh, but you know, we, we had a football team. You know, I loved football, and my dad played college football. So. Um, but baseball was my main sport. In fact, I was recruited to play baseball at Point Park University. Uh, actually, way back then, it was Point Park College. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the opportunity to, I did, you know, go to Point Park uh, my freshman year, play a little bit of baseball. But, um, you know, I was really into the whole journalism thing. Did, did a lot with that my first few years. Um, my, as the story goes, my sophomore year, I'm covering Point Park started its soccer program and uh, you know I kind of kind of went along for the ride and, and started covering the team and uh, next thing you know Matt they had a terrible first season but uh, I was recruited to play you know kind of kind of help fill in the numbers and uh, you know it was part of the program for a couple of years and it was fun and it was great and uh, you know I I, I I would say I was I was just it was a great experience it was awesome to play with Park has a lot of international, had a lot of international students, and being a very small school, NAI school, um, you know, there was there was a little bit of room to, to recruit and get uh, scholarship players and things like that. But um, but the program was just it was it, we hadn't won a pro, we hadn't won a game during my first year or my first yeah two years. I only played two years, but so I went on with my got graduated and got some jobs in media. And, public relations and doing different things and um, about six about five about yeah about four or five years later after I graduated from Point Park 
um, the, the, the coaching position came up and the AD knew who I was. He knew I was like the super organized um, type person. I, I, I was really, um, you know, I, I, I guess I had some, you know, background in coaching, a little bit of background in coaching at a youth level and some stuff, soccer and basketball, but nothing extensive. Um, but I think he was just looking for somebody who was, you know, very well organized um, and, and could recruit. And that was my strength. I, I just, I'll say it, you know, I, I was, I had a good assist, couple assistant coaches and we made the most of it. And um, my first three, my first year at Point Park was our first winning season we ever had as a program. We made the NAI playoffs. We, we beat some ranked teams and we did that for three years. And it was an awesome experience for me as a mid 20 year old. Um, you know, to be able to step in and do that. And, and that's really when I thought, uh, ironically, this is not going to be a traditional tale, um, but this is, it was still, you know, the wild, wild west days of, of, of soccer in America. And I think, and I think in some respects, we still are in those days. Um, we're still growing. We're still trying to figure things out as a nation, as a soccer nation. So, um, so that was a time where someone like myself, who was a decent athlete, who knew the game, but didn't know it at the level of you know, probably somebody like Aaron, um, and I hadn't played it as a youth player, um, didn't have the technical background, but anyway, just got involved in the game and, and found a way to, to continue doing that. And so after that third year, my second son was born and I, I just, there was no way I had two, two, I had a, a four-year-old and a, and a newborn and, um, I, I had a really great opportunity to take a job as a competition director for Special Olympics in Pennsylvania for statewide games, um, with soccer being an emphasis and um, running for soccer state tournaments and all of that. So I took advantage of that um, job and um, did that. And unfortunately, I uh, didn't coach then um, at that mm -hmm. level ever again, but uh, I did have the opportunity to you know, get back into youth coaching. And then I coached at the high school level for a few years once my kids were older uh, at North Catholic and then uh, at Shadyside Academy. So that's my, that's my background. <laughs> I think that, um, well, tell me what you're like as a coach um, in terms of your demeanor or sort of how you approached, you know, you mentioned about being organized and, you know, that being a strength of um, recruiting athletes and, uh, you know, just your overall, how you approach your work. But um, tell me a little bit about, you know, what were you like at your training session or on match day? And, um, you know, I, I find myself sort of very hands-on um, in terms of training sessions, uh, a lot of instruction points, a lot of chatter, uh, a lot of talking. I tend to be a little bit more quiet, you know, on match days. And uh, not that I completely sit on my hands and, and watch a match go by, but, you know, unless there's something completely haywire, um, you know, I'm more observant, make my coaching points, you know, maybe at halftime or, or something like that. And I wonder what, you know, what you were like uh, when you were sort of in the trenches. Uh, great question. Um, I, I'll definitely say in my, my, year, my younger years, when actually when I was coaching at the collegiate level, I really leaned on my staff and, and, and the, the people who, uh, you know, had, had, had extensive knowledge in terms of training and day-to-day -day things. I think we were really, really big on a short-sighted game and just letting our guys get touches and, um, you know, those type of things. I, I think when you're at the collegiate level, I think the technical, even, and again, the, 
25 years ago, 25 years ago, that we, we felt that the guys were at that point technically as technically proficient as they could be. I think that side of the game, I didn't know each person. And uh, there were different things we would do, you know, drills and whatnot. But I think we spent a lot of time, you know, we needed to get to know the guys. Uh, sometimes it's hard to bring a, a lot of guys together from all over the world in a short period of time. And so just getting those short-sighted games and just seeing them work together, uh, that, was, that was our forte. I mean, it really was. And, you know, I had Graf Polinkowski, who was coaching at Plum now. It was his first year he ever coached as my assistant uh, at Plum High School. He's, he's has been an outstanding job this year. He's also coached some, some clubs in and around the area. So I learned a lot from Graf. Um, I had some, you know, I had that uh, going. And, and not only that, I, again, I felt like providing a sense of um, um, stability in terms of you know, being consistent in terms of our practices, our schedules, our fields. I mean, you know, we, we sit here trying to coach games and things like that. With Point Park's program, the, the truth was we needed stability. We needed to be at the same practice field. Uh, we didn't have our own practice field. It was just those little things I think made a difference uh, in terms of the players from the previous year that uh, I had inherited. You know, like, they were used to like, oh, well, this day we're practicing on this field, and this day we're practicing on that. I mean, this is where we were at that time, where we've come so, so far um, in, in such a long period of time. Um, to be able to bring stability to that program and have the same kind of routine. So we would, one of the most unique things we did in training was um, our, our practice field was on Mount Washington in Pittsburgh. So and Point Park was located in downtown Pittsburgh. So one of the things we did was we had a, a training run every morning during the first two weeks of camp was to run from Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh across Liberty Bridge and up McArdle Roadway, uh, which is to the top of Mount Washington. And the field was probably a half, nine and a half miles from that point. So it was somewhere around a, uh, it wasn't that long, it was like a two-some mile run. Um, but even my son now uh, talks about it, they tell everybody, cardiovascular training for players. But yeah, we ran every five um, up Mount Washington every morning before practice. Uh, we, we went pretty hard um, conditioning for about an hour or so. So I was a real big believer. We didn't have a lot of numbers weren't great, so we had to keep guys healthy. Um, we were somewhere between six and seven players um, if all was going well. And uh, somehow managed to, to have wins. Uh, obviously nowadays um, but no, conditioning was very, very important. Um, Short-sided games, very, very key. Um, In-game adjustments, like you said, I'm not a big believer in, um, you know, not like Bob Lilly trying to orchestrate everything throughout the course of the game, uh, whereas at halftime, you can sit and talk about it. Soccer is a difficult sport to, to do that during the, the run of play. Um, I have a huge basketball background, so and I, and I think basketball coaches micromanage my philosophy is more, um, you know, let those short side games, playing the game, you know, knowing your your base, um, um, you know, knowing what you're going to do that day uh, in terms of tactics, and you can, you know, you can adjust on the fly at halftime. 
proponent of letting the players play. And and I was very I'm sorry I'm rambling a lot, but I was very very fortunate also to have uh, some outstanding leadership on the field. I had a 30 I was a 20 something year old coach when I was four or five years old, and I had a 34 year old captain from Scotland who you know again he was like a third coach. So of course that that really helped. Yeah. Well, interesting you mentioned Raph. Um, I actually saw Raph, and he coaches now with uh, Pittsburgh Hotspurs and uh, actually shook his hand last Friday. Uh, we were both at the same training session. He was with a different group, and um, I, what a small world, right? Um, and talk about a guy that, uh, you know, you feel you can lean on. Um, I mean, he's uh, got quite a pedigree, uh, you know, uh, locally. So um, and it's been cool to get to know him a little bit. I don't know him exceptionally well, but um, yeah, need to hear sort of the, the connectivity of all that. Um, Aaron, bring you into this um, in terms of, uh, you know, some of your experiences. Well, I think I just had to make a comment. So you would run from downtown Pittsburgh to Mount Washington and you didn't take the incline? Uh, nope. <laughs> oh, I, take, I can take the incline, but the players would. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. We actually, we actually played at Pitt last in the 2018 season and so obviously you're talking about the the facilities at Pitt and and we got to play on that field that was that is a great place it's a great place um to play a game and you know really happy for Randy Waldrum and them doing their thing over there um, but yeah we took the players up the incline um on our day off and we got to look out like every tourist in Pittsburgh probably does but uh it's uh it was really cool and I can't imagine running up that hill after or before training that's crazy so you did you were fit you were fit and you were able to run for 90 minutes um you know one of the things that you said and it's really kind of appropriate for today Jurgen Klopp said was interviewed last week I think and and he said the exact same thing that that you just said he said that he surrounds himself with the smartest coaches that he can get around him and I mean and that that's what great leaders do and you you obviously were aware enough to think, well, maybe I'm not as strong in this area or this area, but um, I'm going to bring the right people in to do that. And I think that's amazing. I, I mean, I try to do the same thing. Listen, I, I'm just, I'm just as good as the people around me. And I want to bring people in that are smarter than me. Cause that makes me look smarter if I got people smarter than me. So, so I think that's awesome. And I think that's, that's a really important thing for, for any coach and, especially young coaches coming up to, to not be too proud of, of your own abilities, but recognize, can you, um, can you enhance what you can do by bringing somebody else in that may uh, complement what you do? And that's awesome. You know, one of the things that you said um, that stuck with me as well was structure and consistency. And that's what you thought Point Park needed at the time was, that to make that team successful and there's so much in college coaching that goes into just providing that consistency and that structure for these players because you're right hopefully you're recruiting the right player and they have the technical tactical ability and you're just putting them in an environment so they can flourish and they can't do that without structure and consistency and so one of the things that I'm, I'm so big on, on just passion and finding the joy of the game, what took you back to coaching? 
I mean, you obviously must have had a passion for soccer if you would leave a career in public relations, journalism, and go. And I can't imagine you were making a ton of money as the head coach there. No. It was, <laughs> it, well, it was, yeah, to be honest, I mean, quite frankly, I was a part-time coach, so and full-time. I had full-time work for Brown back. But gotcha. That was, yeah, there was the, those were the days of the, you know, the wild, wild west when, uh, you, you know, you couldn't afford to, the NAI school. There were high school coaches making more money than you know, most high school towns. It was com- comparable to a lot of high school coaching jobs, pay-wise, you know, we're in that ballpark. I mean, uh, so yeah, it was a bit of a, it was a challenge. I mean, before I got there, there was, they, I think Cedar Park had five coaches five years, and then I was there for three. So uh, there's your stability. I think that was, and they, you know, the thing was, is my, one of my strengths too, there, at least there, had, it was a good way for me to, you know, obviously got really in tune with the game at that point. Uh, and got to know a lot more about, you know, how to coach and kind of wet my boots, uh, for lack of a better word, just kind of really got my, um, got involved in it at that point, but, um, you know, they, I think that, I don't know, I didn't, that, that opportunity gave me a chance to kind of see some of my strengths that I didn't know I had, that was great, and I think other people saw that, and that was really good, but, but and, and I talked earlier, too, briefly about the recruiting aspect of it, and that's something that as a college coach, that's very unique, and, and look, I spent two and a half hours sitting There's some recruiting at that level as well. It was different, but it was definitely recruiting as well. But um, there's something to be said for that as well. Um, I think young people want to play somewhere where they could, you know, they can have a really great college experience or a really great experience as a player. So sometimes now, like they're doing recruiting at the club level because you're you're going to um, promote and talk about it as a positive experience that, you know, it's, it's so competitive and there's money involved and there's all these different things going on. And, um, you know, I think people will, will make an investment if it's something that they believe in. And I felt like I could talk to um, young players at that time in my life and be able to say, you know, this, this, if you come here and be a part of this program, we can do something really special. Um, and, you know, I use Point Park, uh, downtown Pittsburgh as our campus, you know, motto. And uh, people, you know, if you were, if there was a, a young person who wanted something that non-traditional, a little bit of a non-traditional college experience, but being in a, driving in a metropolitan area, um, it, 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 it struck a chord with a number of kids. And we also had some international, uh, we had significant success in my time, recruiting uh, a number of international students with help from our international department. Um, three players from Brazil, really, turned our program around in 1998. Uh, and fantastic players. So that those kind of things all added up. But it, it's also, I brought a lot of passion, you know, you bring a lot of passion and energy. Um, it, you know, it, it, I was I was highly motivated, and I think that, that helped as well. I wanted to keep my my school that I went to um, to be very successful. So I feel like we 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 had the type of success.
Nation's Office Program at Point Park, and it was at a time before we had facilities and everything. So uh, now, Jerome Walsh does his recruit there and say, well, I've, I've got Highmark Stadium, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, and, and don't get me wrong, Jerome is, is a tremendous coach and great guy uh, to play for, and he's allowed the kids really to respond well to him. So uh, he deserves all the credit for the program taking it to a totally different level. So, uh, but we started something, and, and, and I think uh, that was an important uh, thing to be able to get it, get it off the ground. And, uh, I think that was a, it was a lot of great experiences. Do they get to play in Point Park, gets to play in Highmark as a home stadium? Yes. That's awesome. Good yeah. for them. I mean, I mean, there's not a better recruiting tool. I yeah. It's pretty close, too, so I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. It's a shorter run than running up <laughs> and no <laughs> incline. <laughs> uh, quick story, John, before I ask a, a follow up question. So, I've um, been married 12 years, and when I had proposed to my wife, we went to dinner on the South Side. Uh, I was coming up with this idea that I was going to take her up to Mount Washington, I was going to propose to her. And so, there's a, a Catholic church uh, on Mount Washington near one of the lookouts. Yep. And nervous as hell, uh, right? I'm going to ask this girl, you know, to marry me. Got the ring in my pocket. But I don't want her to get too close to the edge on the overlook because, you know, for anyone that's seen it, you know, that's a pretty big drop off, right? And thousands of dollars down the drain. So, and it's, uh, I proposed to her on December 15th. And so it's one of those typical days like today, right? It's a cold, gray, you know, December day. And um, again, arm shaking and sort of doing this, um, you know, thankfully she said yes. But uh, yeah, I think of that anytime that I've gone up uh, McArdle Roadway or across Liberty Bridge and, um, you know, up to Mount Washington. So it's funny. I'll have a new, maybe uh, or at least a secondary thought when I go across there now and uh, think of your guys uh, <laughs> running back in the day. Hey, Aaron, we have a new sponsor in 2020. Yeah, what is that? Uh, it's Manscaped. And uh, have you ever been to the beach or ever been out somewhere and noticed the uh, the guy that's wearing literally like a, a rug, you know, hasn't really taken yeah. care of himself? Oh, yeah. Uh, pretty nasty, right? No one wants Oh, yeah. That. No, no. So uh, Manscaped has created a redesigned electric trimmer. And you and I actually both got these in the mail. And their Lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin safe technology. So you won't nick yourself uh, while you're trying to clean up those body hairs that are just a nuisance. Uh, manscaping accidents will finally be a thing of the past. So I think you and I can both give a high five for that. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, you don't want to use the same trimmer that you use on your face for other parts of your body, right? That's kind of gross. Yeah, no, I don't want to do that. So you can use our promo code OTTL at manscaped.com to get 20% off plus free shipping. So that's OTTL at manscaped.com. Uh, you always want to use the right tools for the job, uh, your body, and below the belt. Well, certainly thank you. So that's O-T-T-L at checkout at manscaped.com 
and you'll get free shipping and 20% off today. I wanted to ask about, you know, Aaron, obviously working in the college game, you've worked in the college game, uh, high school soccer, and you've mentioned sort of the, you know, the competitiveness now of attracting players to the game and at the youth level, right? Um, and I, I experienced that on a, a yearly basis. There's a, a whole lot of competition for local players now. And you know, largely, I would say that's probably a good thing um, and would encourage parents and family members to be, you know, to do their due diligence in terms of looking at clubs, because there are some clubs that might be a better fit for a, a young player. Uh, you know, I, I feel like sometimes, though, people want to speak negatively about the high school game. And yes, there are times where um, if you watch a high school match, it may not necessarily be the, um, you know, the, the best soccer that you've ever seen played. However, you know, having coached in that environment, I've told a few people this, there is a, a massive opportunity as a coach to teach the game and to have a, just a, a really significant impact on the players that you're working with. And not to say that doesn't happen in other environments, but I think, you know, in, in my situation, I mean, we didn't have a number, you know, we didn't have that many um, cup players or, uh, you know, club players. Um, a lot of these players that we had were, um, you know, they had really only experienced the rec environment or maybe a little bit of travel with like a local you know, organization. And I just wonder if there's a, a misconception about high school soccer. And, you know, maybe that's a, a very Pittsburgh-only question. I've heard stories from other people, you know, around the country, but obviously you write about it here locally. Yeah, well, I write about it locally. I will say Pittsburgh soccer now, in terms of our clicks and views and just following, um, and this is unfortunate, really, when you think about the bigger picture, you would think the Riverhounds would be our, like, our main and it and we try to make it our focus because it's the professional you know the highest level of the game in our area but the high school stuff is what people follow it's what it what really drives our site in terms of numbers and all of those types of things and just generates interest and talk and it's just now i think part in our i don't know if that's common around the the country um, and other pockets. Now, I was covering the Hounds playoff game in 2015 in New Jersey at Red Bull Arena. And the game, that game was scheduled, I think it was a five o'clock kick. And we got there pretty early. We got there about 1.30 or so. And there was a game going on in Red Bull Arena. It was two teams, local teams, uh, New Jersey teams, high school teams. And Red Bull Arena was packed. I mean, it was a lively atmosphere. And now there was, there was a rivalry that goes, I forget the exact two, two schools, but it's a rivalry that goes back a long, long way, immigrant base, the whole thing. Um, but New Jersey soccer, I mean, obviously it's not, you've never, I've never seen anything like it and at that level. Um, it was really something to see. Now, again, it's like those pockets of, you know, places where people are really passionate. Now, when we have the WPIL finals at Highmark Stadium, uh, they've been doing it since 2013. There's, you know, you get to that second game on a back-to-back -back on a Thursday or Friday night, and you got the schools, the four, you know, there's two schools that played earlier, two schools that played after, and 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 there's just a vibe in the stands. You're just not going to get it at any club level at all. 
And so what I look at, and I wrote about this about a year or two ago, and I like to repost the story often, is the story about, basically about how, you know, high school, playing at the high school level, you know, the kids get to play under some significant pressure uh, situations. They're playing for something. They're playing for their school. They're playing for, and, and again, this is not to disparage clubs and, and, and those obviously high-level opportunities to play, you know, and travel and to do all those things. But it's just something special about the high school game in terms of being able to win a win for your school, even if you don't get to the finals, like just the, just the whole experience, the camaraderie, the, you know, playing for your school with your teammates, seeing those four years of those kids grow. And there's big programs. There's, you coached in a smaller program. I mean, you, there's just a lot of benefits. Um, it's just unfortunate that the game is not in line with FIFA and in line with the rest of the world. And, you know, I know the college game struggles a little bit in that area as well, but it, it's not as much. Um, but yeah, we, I, it just, it, it's, I'm, I will fight for the high school game. I think that the, obviously those changes need to come and we'll, you know, we'll continue on uh, through my forum, through this, what I do to hopefully, um, you know, write stories and, and chronicle different things that need to be improved. The refer, you know, the officiating, the, um, the, the way the, the rules, the laws of the game, you know, all of those things, they're, it just, there's a lot of things that need to be improved, but um, obviously some of the things I spoke about just a little while ago, all those positive attributes, I think those are, they're, they're real. And it's, and, you know, I can tell you my son played at Fox Chapel and had a great four-year run and he grew as a player, both on his club side, but his high school experience is far none. He will tell you that that was his, that was his most special part of his soccer career. That's, uh, I think it's cool to hear that, um, you know, not only with you being a, a former coach, but, you know, just as a dad, right? And I would want the same for, for my three kids um, as they get a little bit older. Um, John, you'd mentioned something that I thought uh, was really great. And I've had this conversation with um, some of the coaches that actually played in, in the Whitfield final here recently of the laws of the game, uh, the, the structure of the refereeing and the officiating and it not being in line with sort of the, um, you know, the, the things that FIFA uh, as a governing body sort of says, this is what, you know, football or soccer should look like. And then um, maybe explain, and you don't have to necessarily do a deep dive, but what that actually means. Um, and it was, a, it was a little eye-opening for me coming into the high school game when I asked some of those initial questions going, wait a sec, this is a little different. And, um, you know, and you had mentioned sort of even some comparisons with uh, college soccer, it, you know, the NCAA, obviously, or, uh, you know, NAIA, um, you know, they make the rules in terms of, uh, you know, how games are going to look and feel and number of substitutions and all these different things. And just explain maybe to the listening audience a little bit just what that actually means. And I know we have this sort of um, cockamamie system of officiating here in Pennsylvania, um, that is, I've had this conversation with folks not in Pennsylvania and they look at me and they go, what in the hell is that? Um, it, it's a little bizarre. I will lie. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's been, I think it's been built out of necessity. There's, uh, not, you know, this was done 20 plus years ago when they, I don't know, they, they came up with this three whistle system where, 
each official has a whistle and the two officials on the side are not true linesmen. Um, they're officiating on the field. They're sort of half doing half the job of the linesman, but still kind of serving as a field official. It, it's just so bizarre. Um, and, you know, there, I mean, there's obviously a lot of flaws. There's the officials are, um, you know, not in, not a lot of them are not in good physical shape. I mean, they're just having trouble getting up and down the field. And so uh, there's just, but there's the numbers problems, you know, there's, there's just, there's a massive shortage and it's not just soccer across the board at, at this level, um, at the high school level in the PIAA, Pennsylvania's um, uh, governing body and that oversees the, everything, you know, so there's, I don't know where to start, to be honest. I mean, I, I think I applaud the WPIL, which is the Western Pennsylvania's District 7 for trying a pilot program, proposing a pilot program, which got rejected by the Pennsylvania, the higher the Pennsylvania uh, PIAA this um, previous summer, um, where they were going to go to a one whistle system and pilot it during the, the Whitfield season, and it, it got rejected. Now, the PIAA's response was, you know, we, we want to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And that, that, you know, that I understand and that makes sense, but I don't know. They just, there's, that's a big issue uh, in terms of, um, you know, the game being played where, you know, but, I mean, the offside issue is, 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 a, is a part of it, um, not having the flag. And it's just players are used to it, you know, playing everywhere else they play and then coming into the high school game have to adjust a bit. Uh, I, it's just, it's been frustrating to watch from my standpoint where I'm covering games and I hear, you know, I, I can just see the kind of the, you know, the way the officials have struggled. There was a call, and I know the referee who made the call. There was a call in um, one of the Whitfield finals where a referee was way on the other side of the field and called a player for, um, I guess, diving um, during on a, on, a, on a set piece, like going down before the ball, before the play even took place. And he was way on the other side. Um, had, and in the high school game, you got to sit out for five minutes. It was essentially the best player from the one team came out during the overtime. Uh, and obviously, you know, what happened was uh, Quaker Valley was, ended up scoring a goal to win that, that match. But that was a Deer Lakes player. I think, uh, Jason, you're well aware of the situation. I mean, yeah. there's just a lot of different uh, scenarios that happened this, this last few years where it's sort of come to the forefront. Um, these, I think, you know, officials are always going to be human and they're going to make errors and there's going to be issues. Um, it just seems to be compounded with this current situation. Aaron, I saw your face. Uh... <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know that, that there are three whistles on the field with no ARs with flags. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I know the NCAA has some funky rules that are different from FIFA, but that's that's taking it into a completely different realm there. You're totally changing the how the game is functionally officiated. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. 
And and what makes it worse is that you have the three. Okay, so they it's not like the center ref is the center ref the whole game. They have to rotate every. I'm trying to think. I think it's twenty minutes or twenty five minutes. Jason, do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly. They're they're rotating. Um, I don't remember exactly uh, minute wise, but it, it's close to that. Um, and yeah, you're you're going to get numerous looks um, in from some able-bodied and some not so able-bodied uh, officials. Um, that was definitely the experience I had uh, this past season. So that's probably true of every high school in every state. Officiating is your your your. So you'll get some officials that struggle physically to to cover the field, which obviously in soccer is a pretty important piece of officiating is field coverage. That's why they have fitness tests for the officials at the highest level, even you know the college level or the professional level. I mean, they got to pass fitness tests just like a player does. So it's very fascinating. But I'm sure that's uh, it's good that you guys are. Do you, do you, is there is there a way that that it can change, or is it just through continued dialogue with? Because I guess you said, I mean, you can't be Whippeal. It has to be the main Pennsylvania governing body. And man, that's I definitely in Ohio. You get some two two refereeing systems here in Ohio, but I've never seen the the three with uh, whistles. That's crazy. Yeah, it, there's, I mean, there's, this, believe me, it's a hot topic. I think every, all sides are trying to, uh, you know, make it, you know, make sure that this, this, that, you know, this gets resolved. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know how soon it's going to be resolved. I mean, it could be, it could be resolved as early as this year. I don't think so. I think that there's too much of an infrastructure issue in terms of the officials would have to be trained. The current officials transitioning into the new system and, and understanding the laws of the game, they're not, a lot of these guys are guys that like, you know, officiate other sports. They're not hardcore, and I, it may be a case in other states, I'm not sure, but a lot of these guys are guys that you'll see on a basketball court or a volleyball or, you know, whatever, and they're just sort of rent a ref type guys, and they all wear the same, you know, stripes referee jerk, uh, shirts and it's and they you know they they take the test they have to take and they can pass it and they're good to go and um, it's just I, and and this this issue has kept other qualified certified officials who will officiate all the other levels of the yeah game. they keep a lot of them don't do the high school game. so there's going to have to be that integration and recruitment effort to bring them into the poll once they go back they, they hopefully can get to their one whistle that that was my next question i mean i'm sure there are plenty of qualified fifa refs or u.s soccer refs fifa maybe not but u.s soccer refs in the western pennsylvania area and they aren't interested in doing it i i don't you know i don't know what the disparity is between you know so the, between the the pa west for example guys that just referee PA West and don't do high school. I mean, there's definitely some crossover. There are some guys that do both and yeah. you know, they, they, they deal with it. And there are some that adamantly say, I will not touch, go near the high school game because of this. Um, 
often will cite the uh, abuse issue from fans and coaches and as a reason why they don't want to, why it's hard to, to, to recruit more officials. Um, I think, of course, in this society, we can do better job of, you know, everybody can do better in that area, but it's a, I mean, it's, it's, that's a concern, but I don't, I, I think that we can do better. In terms of um, switch gears a little bit, John, from the, the high school game, um, the the state of soccer overall uh, in the U.S. and it um, you know it, a lot of it uh, gets talked about um, you know on social media and um, the different you know uh, forums and platforms that are out there. Uh, what is your sort of um, in terms of where we are as a, a soccer country? Um, male, female, um, you know, whatever it may be, and sort of the, you know, growing the game. And, um, you know, I, I sometimes joke about this, but, you know, U.S. soccer has this charge or their mission statement that you know, their goal is to make soccer the, um, the preeminent sport here in the States. I don't know if they're doing that. Um, I feel like they're letting us down. And, um, you know, I often say if we had a, a living, breathing federation, they'd you know, some of this would actually change and, and perhaps get better. But, you know, from a, a vantage point where you see a bunch of different sides, right, you're covering the professional game, you're covering the college game, the high school game, and everything in between, um, you know, what would you say? Well, and I'm covering that in a market that's a, certainly a non-traditional soccer market region. I mean, again, we talked already about the history of the back and forth of where, how, where Pittsburgh has come. And I'm good friends. Actually, my one of my teammates, uh, my roommate is one of my better friends, and uh, we debate this often. And he will say that uh, you know it's it's fifth or sixth, and you know when you talk about all the different you know where where uh, it is in the pecking order. Uh, Terms of, uh, no, and and that's you can't change culture. It's just part of our, what we already have in our sporting culture is already immense. It's part of it. What I think where soccer, I, I know this is just my kind of feeling. It's like soccer it, it can continue to grow, continue to where it's going. Thought that it would be the sport uh, in our our nation. I, I just, you know, I mean, we need to talk. That would be generations down the road. I think that all the work we're doing now is is incremental and it's part of maybe building the game, growing the game. I mean, I have this site I'm totally devoted to helping better educate the readers to learn ways the game because that's where that's where we still are. We're still sitting. I mean. Steelers, Pirates, probably not cut orders. Steelers, Penguins, Pirates, maybe. Um, you know, Pitt, um, you know, baseball, basketball. Uh, I'm sorry, football, basketball, those type of things. I mean, I, I just see soccer is somewhere in that that fourth or fifth in the NHL and the MLS are maybe you know closer now. Maybe there's you know you see these you see Atlanta you see some of these great stories, but um, 
I, I don't know. I just feel like it's it, it just and, and I mean, look at when I look at my site every, and I would think, well, we've got to the river have to touch in this town. And we're we're just, I mean, the high school game because of the the interest of the the players, families, and the people in those small communities are are are. And the, excuse me, the clicks and views and following for the high school coverage is ten times more than what I'm getting for Riverhound game day coverage. That tells me a lot that it's very provincial. It's very much like right now we're still we don't the broader community as a whole is not thirsty for more soccer information. I, I'm saying like the broader community, like. You can't, there is a reason why our local radio stations refuse to talk about soccer because they know that once that topic comes on the air, they're, they're, people are going to stop listening. So this, these are all hurdles that the soccer um, world the community is dealing with. Um, <clears throat> now, all that being said, we've seen great strides. Um, you know, I think locally, I think you know, see the Riverhounds go where they've gone and they have a supporters group now. There, you know, they, the stadium is built to, to, to have 5,000, 6,000 fans for the last playoff game. So, and I do think that at the, at the, at the professional level in a market like Pittsburgh, you absolutely have to win. And I think the Riverhounds have shown that the last two years. You win, you get, you know, people will come, people will support you. Um, and I think, and the way that they're doing it, they're incrementally building successfully and now going to have a facility at Montour Run that's going to be at level with a lot of MLS um, clubs won't even have something like it. <coughs> Excuse me. They're, they're, they're taking the steps and they're investing and they're doing all the right things. They're not trying to just do it all at once. You know, FC Cincinnati put a lot of money up front to, to get to where they've gotten to and it's been successful. But I don't know if that's going to be it's a long, long-term success. Uh, but you know, this is Aaron probably knows that area better than I do. But I think Pittsburgh's just—it's slowly getting there. And I think with success, and you know, you get that second, third generation going <coughs> from the Riverhounds. I think we're gonna we're gonna see we'll see some success. But I don't know. U.S. soccer to me is—it's so hard. It's such a big nation. We have such a huge nation and I think that you know when you look at the success of other countries that are smaller <coughs> but they're in, more in tune with each other what's going on and it's been a huge part of their cultures for, for centuries plus now um, that's what we're up against as a soccer nation as far as I'm concerned. Aaron you've talked about the um, success you've had recruiting here in the Pittsburgh area and that you know part of that has been with the um, the River Hums Development Academy, but, you know, other clubs locally and, um, you know, maybe just speak for a minute about the, how you've seen the quality of the player maybe evolve and change and uh, adapt, uh, you know, in, in your time. Well, I mean, I think, I think John kind of hit the nail on the head when, when the River Hounds would come around and start their, their academy ever many years ago, that was, it, it caused everybody else to raise their game. And so, I think you got you got teams, clubs maybe branching out a little bit more, creating more opportunities for players. I mean, it seems like it seems like Pittsburgh's a very 
um, uh, close high school community that high school sports are followed very, very well. And, and obviously you mentioned that with the clicks on your site for the high school coverage. Um, but I think as you grow as a, as competitiveness, you got to grow that, that club soccer scene. And those players have got to get out and play in different regions of the U.S. And I think that's probably been down to, to maybe competition, um, more emphasis on, on training and, and improving those players in, in that area. And so, I mean, I think I enjoy coming to Pittsburgh. I think our proximity to Pittsburgh only being three hours away is a, is a natural fit for us that you can go a little bit away from home, but you're still closer. You can go home on the weekend and, and you've got some, got some quality teams that, that play in the national league in the U S soccer national league. You got the Riverhounds now playing in the ECNL, the league club national league. Um, I think that, uh, that is fantastic. And, and, and I, and I enjoy it. I enjoy seeing the growth and, you know, you talk about the growth of soccer in the U S and you were talking about, um, Riverhounds and FC Cincinnati and, you know, the, the USL championship, or I guess it's just called the championship now. It, do you feel like, I mean, it's growing like crazy. I mean, you got people buying into that, into that league now for, you got to pay, what is it? 50 million now or something crazy like that to get into the championship. So it's not, it's not like the old days when you were, you were hemorrhaging money. They might be hemorrhaging money now, but it's not for the lack of understanding that they can also make money because the, the need is there. How do you see, cause I mean, obviously FC Cincinnati was probably a fluke because they went in there and they just, they had the money, the ownership group had the money and they just threw it in there and they did it. And in that, that, that gradual climb that the Riverhounds are doing, do you see that, that that's a long-term, that they have longevity there that they can keep going? Because I think, I think if we ever get to promotion relegation and you've got the MLS and you've got the championship and you've got these clubs symbiotically working together, how, do you see the Riverhounds continuing to grow in that? I, I heard, I, I haven't shared this with anybody, but I, I had my long discussion with Bob Lilly the other day. First time I've ever heard him say the words MLS in the same sentence as his club in the Riverhounds. And, you know, he's, he, well, we were having this discussion about how, you know, oh, I've got to go back. I started the drawing board now again because I have six or seven free agents that I, I probably can't afford to sign and I have to look at. You know, to get back to the drawing board. I mean, I was able to, you know, exercise options for X amount of players, but I couldn't re-sign a Joe Greenspan or, 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 or. Well, we don't know about that completely yet. Uh, but a Nico Brett, so for example, is a case of someone who did sign with another club. Um, so my point of this is, the Hounds. He's saying, you know, can't wait till, you know, maybe down the road when we are at that level where we can. You know, at this time of the year, I can I can go out and I can make have 15 guys already coming back for this year. Have a, I mean, they have a decent core coming back for 2020 uh, to start, but they don't have the core that currently that Louisville City has and that Indianapolis have, who are really their main competitors. I mean, obviously there'll be other other clubs that'll be shooting for the top this year too. But he, you know, he's still working with a little bit more less budget. But the vision for him to say, you know, hey, you know, maybe we'll we'll be looking to get into an MLS six or seven years down the road. Um, you know, I 
never heard. I, I and I, you know, we put that bed to rest. We put that to rest uh, a number of years ago when the house hit bankruptcy. Uh, but you know, fortunately, an ownership with uh, ownership is key, and having a Tuffy Schallenberger here in Pittsburgh who uh, is is you know is able to to, to provide the financial resources. He's not gonna. He's not an MLS level ownership, um, but he's he's willing to spend the money. Uh, invest in the facilities. Uh, playing on actually now owns that land at Station Square. So that's a significant. That was pretty significant. Uh, in addition to the Montclair Junction addition past year. So there's the, the Riverhounds. It, it's they're they're building. They're building to get bigger, but they're not in a hurry. They, you know they want to win. Now there's, there's, you know, they have a coach that can win with, you know, it's not say win with little, but um, I think he could, he could go back out and rebuild the roster, find a lot of gems out there um, without spending a lot of, a lot of money. And but they have the, they have, you know, they, he's saying, you know, he's saying he can go out and try to get, trying to get free agents, this and that. And yeah, I mean, these, these clubs have the resources. Um, I think the USL has crafted itself, positioned itself to have to bring in markets that are hungry for this this sort of thing. I think, you know, I'm trying to say, looking around, you know, Birmingham, uh, Nashville, first two years, but now they're up to MLS. I mean, obviously Cincinnati in the beginning, but if you look at some of the newer USL markets, uh, you know, hey, I think one of the big things that I've noticed this year is, that, you know, each year, from year to year, you see a lot of drop. You might see two or three franchises drop, and this and that. I mean, on the Eastern Conference side, Miami, Miami replaces Ottawa, and Nashville goes to MLS. That's it. There's no other turnover, and I think this is the first time we're starting to see that this stability is starting to come into play. And I think it has to do with financial stability first foremost with the franchises, and and the fact that the United States uh, U.S. Soccer. Um, uh, requirement to be a Division Two, um, it's no longer the Wild Wild West of the NASL. What we're seeing at the Division Two level is you have to have a facility that's five thousand or more. They want that soccer only facility or soccer only field. Now there's still a little bit of battle with teams having playing and baseball facilities and things like that, but they're 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 really moving away from that. Um, Louisville City is a perfect example. Played at Slugger Field. Uh, and now we'll be moving into a beautiful new facility starting next year. Uh, it, this is the direction that they're going, and that's the exciting part. That's where the growth of soccer is happening. You're starting to see these mid, mid to bigger sized markets at the Division Two level really pushing to build soccer products that will be here for the long haul, and not what we've seen in the past. Where, and you know, obviously, Aaron, you probably experienced this. As a player, twenty some years ago, you were playing in markets where you, you were probably playing high school stadiums, mm -hmm. playing minor league baseball stadiums, you know, crappy fields, all that stuff. Whereas now, I think that the, the, the bar has been raised a lot higher, and and that's where we're going. So, you know, we talk about U.S. soccer and American soccer maybe struggling, but as a whole, to be out, it's not at a point where. I don't think but to have a stronger division too, I think that's that's a good thing for US soccer.
No, I think that's amazing. I mean, you 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 hit the nail on the head with the fact that the USL that I played in, or you, I mean, is nothing compared to what it is now. I mean, technically it's the same level, but but functionally, I mean, the the ownership, the money, the travel, the stadiums. I mean, you're right. We played in high school stadiums. We played in minor league baseball stadiums. I mean, I remember playing in stadiums where they couldn't even get the pitcher's mound level you know you still have that hump on the field you know and and even some of the better teams that we played against that were fully professional were playing in high school stadiums and you know and it's uh, it's awesome to see the U.S. be able to develop a second tier that can sustain high level soccer and it's it's trendy now I went to a game at um, last year at Nashville SC and they play in the they played in the baseball stadium but it was done really really well but it was trendy you get you get people you know hipsters and trendy people want to go to these games and it's cool and it's fun and you know that's that's really cool and it's 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 great for the health of soccer in the US for sure John tell the uh, audience a little bit about um Pittsburgh Soccer Now and how people can connect with you and uh, the work that you're doing. Sure. Uh, yeah, we, you know, PittsburghSoccerNow.com, we are, you know, as you mentioned very early in, the, in our conversation, uh, I have it's been very fortunate. I started Pittsburgh Soccer Report kind of a, just a solo running, uh, just kind of putting my stuff out there. And it is grown to the point now where we have uh, contributors, myself, uh, Mark, uh, if you follow the American soccer scene, and you know, uh, if you ever followed the Colorado Rapids, we've got um, Rabbi Mark Goodman uh, is a contributor now with us. He, he contributes a little, a couple different areas, but a lot with the Riverhounds. But he's done some some nice local fe- features on local game, and he'll cover pit some pit, uh, do some pit stuff for us as well. Uh, unique perspective, and, and I love having you know, a totally different perspective and insights and just. Uh, unique, great writer, and uh, Matt Geica, who's the play-by-play announcer for the Riverhounds, uh, and, and a long-term uh, media uh, member, I was with DK Pittsburgh Sports Scene at one time, um, fairly well-known in our area, has uh, also contributes, uh, and it's just a huge help to me um, with many different things. Um, and then we have just, a, you know, a team of uh, other contributors, I, I could go on and on, there's a number of people, uh, you know, and I apologize for not including everybody, but, um, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, people who are willing to help in the labor of love. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard, it's tough, but I mean, we have some sponsorship with our high school uh, coverage uh, here and there, but, and, uh, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, we, people are doing it to, I, I think, I, I feel really good about the, the talented group of people who contribute. Uh, and not, and also photographers. We've had a couple of uh, photographers that have contributed to our site. Uh, Ed Thompson, mainly, has been prominent, probably the most prominent photographer. He does a lot of our high school stuff. Uh, he does some really good work. And, uh, so I'm really proud of where it's gotten to, and we're going, and we're going to, uh, you know, continue to cover all areas of the game in the Pittsburgh area uh, aspect, you know, from the Riverhounds all the way down to the youth level. You know, college is, it's been exciting this year was, you know, having Pitt, um, the women's and men's programs grow to the point where, you know, we have two coaches um, who 
have one national championship elsewhere, and we're you know having them in addition to having the Bob Lilly in our uh, soccer region. Uh, I think it's, it's really elevated, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the type of teams that we've been covering. So, so yeah, really, uh, that's pretty much you know, what we've been doing. Uh, a little bit more features, and I do. I'm very excited about a project coming up, uh, and I really haven't talked much about it with anybody outside. Um, but um, I will just say this: it's a book project, and it's about a significant Pittsburgh Riverhound moment. But it's going to be a book that will be more about uh, the understory, is uh, kind of the, um, the the ups and downs and the struggles, and and uh, it's, Exciting moments for uh, a second level, second division, third division soccer um, in soccer in our region and how it's formed over the past seven years since the, since the addition of Highmark Stadium. So that's kind of the theme of it. So I'm, I have a lot of interviews to do in the next probably month and a half and we'll see where it goes as the narrative. I think that's awesome. And uh, just a, a John, a big fan of your work. And, um, I, I contribute to those clicks <laughs> on the website. So um, thank you so much for coming on the, uh, the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. And uh, I'll be sure to link to the website and your Twitter handle and how people can connect with you uh, and follow along with uh, all the good work you're doing. But uh, thanks again. Appreciate having me. A big shout out to John Krasinski for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast with Aaron Rodgers and I. John, thank you so much. That was a really enjoyable chat uh, that we had a few weeks back and glad that we're able to share it out with the audience. And folks, give John a follow on social media and check out what Pittsburgh Soccer Now is doing here in the local uh, Pittsburgh community when it comes to covering the game that we all love. Before we go, uh, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. So hit the pause button, go there now, and leave us a five-star rating, a brief review, and help more and more in the soccer community find out about this show. Also, we have a new partner in 2020, and that is Manscaped. So if you go to manscaped.com and a link in the show notes of how to get there, you can save 20% on your next order by using the promo code OTTL. It'll also get you free shipping. So guys, you want to go and check that one out um, while you're there. And last but not least, reach out to Aaron and I on social media, active on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find us at SoccerCoachJB for me and at OhioSoccerCoach for Aaron. Guys, we'll catch you next Wednesday. Go and enjoy the FA Cup and a lot of the other football that's happening this weekend. And we'll be back in your feed really, really soon. Until next time, this has been the On the Touchline podcast. <laughs>